Uh, this evening we are going to continue um, our study in the book of Nehemiah. You know, although it's Valentine's Day, a sermon on love was tempting. No, not really. But uh, if you remember, you know, we have begun considering some of the opposition that Nehemiah faced as he embarked on this great rebuilding project. And we established that what is going on is spiritual warfare. It's Satan versus God. Nehemiah is God's man striving to do God's work and Satan is actively striving to bring it to a standstill. And there is much for us to learn for we too are in a spiritual battle and hence we would do well to take heed to the lessons revealed. Now we have spent two sermons in the fourth chapter thus far and we have considered two weapons that Satan employs. Are they being ridicule? and internal discouragement. And tonight we are going to consider the primary weapon from Satan's arsenal that he employs against this rebuilding endeavour, that being physical opposition. I want to read from verse 7 of the fourth chapter of Nehemiah down to the end of the chapter. So Nehemiah uh, chapter 4 and we'll read from verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. But it came to pass that when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashadites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, then they were very wroth and conspired all of them together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. And Judah said, The strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed, and there is much rubbish, so that we are not able to build the walls. And our adversaries said, They shall not know, neither see, till we come in the midst among them and slay them, and cause the work to cease. And it came to pass that when the Jews which dwelt by them came, they said unto us ten times, From all places whence ye shall return unto us, they will be upon you. Therefore set I in the lower places behind the wall, and on the higher places. I even set the people after their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and rose up, and said unto the nobles, and to the rulers, and to the rest of the people, Be not afraid of them, remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your houses." And it came to pass when our enemies heard that it was known unto us, and God had brought their counsel to naught, that we returned all of us to the wall, every one unto his work. And it came to pass from that time forth that the half of my servants wrought in the work, and the other half of them held both the spears, the shields, and the bows, and the habergeons, which is armor. And the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. Now they which build it on the wall, and they that bear burdens with those that laid it. Now every one with one of his hands wrought in the work, and with the other hand held a weapon. For the builders, every one had his sword girded by his side, and so builded. And when he that sounded the trumpet was by me. And I said unto the nobles, and to the rulers, and to the rest of the people, The work is great and large, and we are separated upon the wall, one far from another. In what place, therefore, ye hear the sound of the trumpet? Resort ye thither unto us. Our God shall fight for us. So we laboured in the work, and half of them held the spears from the rising of the morning to the stars appeared. Likewise, at the same time, said I unto the people, 
Let every one with his servant lodge within Jerusalem, that in the night they may be a guard to us and labor on the day. So neither I, nor my brethren, nor my servants, nor the man of the guard which followed me, none of us put off our clothes, saving that every one put them off for washing. Amen. Uh, the title for the sermon this evening is, What Would It Take? So let's, let's pray. Father, I do thank you for uh, another night that you have given to us. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity that uh, we have to be able to meet uh, corporately at this midweek meeting and offer our prayers uh, unto you. Uh, Father, we do thank you that you are a faithful God uh, who will listen to our prayers and will answer them according to your will. Uh, Father, I thank you now for the wonderful privilege that I have to open up uh, your word um, and teach. And Father, I do pray tonight that you help me to speak clearly that this would be a word from you and not from me. And Father, I do pray tonight that you would give us the grace to apply where relevant within our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. On April 20, 1999, a tragic massacre occurred at the Columbian High School. 13 were murdered and 21 more were injured as two depraved deviates went on a rampage for reasons that still remain somewhat unknown. Now, one of the great tragedies that arose um, from this was that a young lady was cowering in the library, endeavouring to remain um, hidden. Uh, During this time, um, she was praying. And the young man, psychopath, no, found her and asked her, are you praying to God? But she said, yes. Do you believe in God? I do. And she was shot at point-blank range. And although the veracity and particular details of this story is now questioned, now at that time it did result in the publication of a book and it really resonated with teenage believers, particularly in America, you know, encouraging them to be bold for Christ no matter the cost. And as I come across this story again recently, you know, it made me think, you know, imagine being put in that situation, you know, having a gun put to your head or to the head of one you love, you know, your spouse or your child. If you deny Christ, you will live. But if you do not, the trigger will be pulled. Oh, what a terrifying situation to be put in. You know, and to be honest, you know, we never actually know how we would respond I would like to think that we would never deny Christ, but even great men like the Apostle Peter has faltered. Oh, the threat of physical harm would be incredibly difficult to endure. And when praise God, we don't face it in our country, but there are thousands of believers who face this daily. And perhaps one day this will be something that we too will have to encounter. It's often been the fate of those who follow Christ. And it is the threat of physical persecution that Nehemiah and the rebuilding team face before us. And I'd like to consider our text under two headings. They being the murderous mood and the manager's move. So firstly, I want to consider the murderous mood. Now, despite the enemy's best efforts to bring this rebuilding work to a grinding halt by demoralizing the construction team from both within and without, they had failed, for the walls continued to be built up, stone upon stone, mortar upon mortar, 
Day after day, the construction team laboured diligently by the sweat of their brow. Their backs, no doubt, would have been hurting, and yet they pressed on. And progress was obvious. Verse 6 informs us that the walls were now constructed to half the heights. This is probably around about six foot. And the gaping holes were now filled. Now, it was obvious to the enemy that a new plan had to be employed The verbal barrage had proved to be ineffective. It hadn't deflated the enthusiasm at all. and It hadn't popped the balloon. In fact, it seemed to add air to it. So it was now time to implement the physical assault. An army was gathered. An army that was fueled by hatred and anger and was threatening to come up against the Jews. Oh, it is important that you and I understand the realness and the extent of this conspiracy to begin a war. Oh, this was not just idle chit-chat. For in verse 7, four groups of people have gathered as one. And what is significant is that these groups come from different directions. We have Sanballat and the Samaritans there from the north, Tobiah and the Ammonites from the east, the Arabs from the south, and the Ashadites from the west. So geographically, the city of Jerusalem was surrounded, surrounded in all directions by powerful foes, and who knows when they will attack. And what a terrifying reality. The anxiety levels must have been high. Imagine if this school was surrounded by ISIS militants and we are trapped inside. How frightening that would be. And it was this type of situation that people found themselves in. Everyone was out to get them. In fact, it seemed that no one around the Jews were friends with them. They were all alone. And this is often the common plight for God's people. Forced to stand alone. Stand by themselves as the trials and troubles encompass them. One thinks of the prophet Jeremiah who sat alone, despised and rejected. The apostle Paul who was treated evilly, he stood alone. He declared in 2 Timothy 4.16, At my first answer no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. This was his plight. And this was the predicament that God's people of old found themselves in. The enemies closed in. Perhaps they recited David because this would have resonated with their quandary when he declared in Psalm 22, Many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a raving and a roaring lion. In fact, it is the image of the lion that describes the intention of the gathering military force as revealed in verse 11. Now, they threatened a silent and subtle invasion, but their objective was clear. It was to slay them, you know, to kill them. They were bloodthirsty animals. They only had one intention, to take life. For they thought this was the only way that they could bring this work to a halt in light of their previous failures. And we must understand that they are not messing around. They hadn't gathered just to have a tea party and hopefully scare the builders by their mere presence. They had intentions to kill. 
And this is confirmed by the Jews in the surrounding areas who came into the city and informed the people of the armies that had gathered. We see this in verse 12. You know, this was real. You know, the enemy of God's work and people were not playing games. They were ready to wreak havoc. They were in a murderous mood. And beloved, this reminds us of the serious nature of spiritual warfare. You know, we too are in the battle. And when our enemy Satan and his wicked army are not playing games, they are not messing around. New Testament tells us he's a roaring lion, he's seeking whom he may devour. Do you remember the story of Job? Here we get an insight into the havoc that he caused. He took absolutely everything, his home, his farm, his family, his health. He left him with nothing but his life and that was only because God said he couldn't take it. And this reveals to us the character and the intentions of our enemy. He seeks to render us useless and destroy us. And we can't take our eternal life, but he's, de- but he's determined to take everything else. And we must understand the intentions of the enemy we fight and the nature of the battle that we are in. You know, we are not in a game, we are in a war. Now, the Jews at this time are completely surrounded. Now, the rumors are running rife. No doubt there is much fear present. The anxiety levels are so high that the gauge is breaking. Now, the ruthless enemy is bloodthirsty and they have them in their sights. And it is the task of Nehemiah to deal with this situation. And this is what we'll consider secondly. What I've entitled the manager's move. Now, as the leader, Nehemiah had a vitally important role to play in order to ensure that the project continued. The morale had taken a real beating. Fear would have been gripping and quitting would have looked very attractive. And hence, the leader's reaction is crucial. In verse 9, we are informed of his method of dealing with all of this trouble. And it began with prayer. Now, committing the matter to God was not the last option, but the first. And that is very instructive, isn't it? No, prayer is not to be the last resort. And yet, how often this is the case in our lives. You know, we seek to do things our way. Seek the advice of friends and family. Try this and try that. And when all of that fails, then, then we go to the Lord in prayer. But that is not to be how we do things. No, prayer is to be first. For when one prays before anything else, it is admitting that we are completely dependent and relying upon God. We are expressing Christ's dependence rather than self-dependence. What is particularly instructive in this situation is that this is not the first time that Nehemiah has prayed. And his whole ministry is bathed in prayer. That's the secret to the power and success of his ministry. But what is particularly interesting is that in verse 4, Nehemiah had just prayed, and yet the opposition had continued, and yet this didn't stop him from praying. It would have been easy to grow despondent and think that God could stop this instantly and yet He hasn't. Why should I keep on praying? 
Yet Nehemiah and the people didn't adopt this attitude. You know, in the words of one author, you know, nothing would make them stop depending on God through prayer. You know, they might have given up believing the continued attack was a failure on God's part to answer prayer before, you know, but they had more trust in God than that. You know, and we too must learn from this. You know, our prayers may not always be answered instantly or the way that we expect them to be. And yet this should not deter us from praying. We must remember that our God is all-wise. He knows best. And His ways and plans are often very different to ours, and yet His ways are the best ways. You know, He has a purpose. He will bring it to pass. And it will often make no sense whatsoever Just like in the situation before us, I'm sure it made no sense. As one commentator put it, God allowed the attack to go on even though He could have instantly swept it away. Yet He allowed it to continue because He was delighted that His people drew closer to Him with a deeper trust than ever before. God did His perfect work both in building the walls and His people. And this shows to us God's wisdom. And reminds us that His way and His timing is often very different to ours, but we must trust Him. And come to Him first with our troubles, just like Nehemiah did, who practiced the New Testament principle of casting his cares upon the Lord. And it was with the power of prayer that he first confronted this great problem with. I'd like to draw your attention... Back to verse 9, where we see that it wasn't just prayer and then sit down and do nothing, but rather he was reactive. You know, prayer was not a substitute for action. And hence we see Nehemiah set up a watch. What we see here is that he listened and responded to the fears of the people. They were scared, they wanted him to do something, and he was sensitive to their needs. An attribute that all good leaders need to possess. And when hence he went about setting up a watch after praying. You know, isn't it interesting that Jesus warned the disciples to watch and pray so they wouldn't fall into temptation? And it was their failure in doing this that resulted in them forsaking the Lord. But Nehemiah didn't make this mistake. And when similar, similar phraseology is used, although different meaning is employed. You know, he prayed and he set up a watch. Verse 13 informs us as to what was involved in the setting up of this watch. You know, he took definite action. This involves suspending the work for a brief moment, which I'm sure he didn't like. But he turns the city into an armed camp. He gathers the people together, he gathers and puts them into family groups. This was the custom of the Israelite army, and this would heighten everyone's awareness of the stakes if they're in the trenches with their brothers beside them. We are told that he employed troops in the low parts, which would be the most vulnerable, and also the higher parts, which means the troops could see the enemy and the enemy could see the troops. Now, all of the men were suited up in armor, 
The spears, the swords and the bows were all out. They were prepared for conflict. The enemy was not going to catch them off guard. And they were motivated by a stirring speech from the mouth of Nehemiah. And he reminded them to remember their God and to fight for their families. And this was all the motivation and inspiration they required. The enemies, upon learning of the Jews' preparation and their willingness to fight, knowing that this surprise attack was now out of the equation, back down. The armed city now didn't look quite as weak. They were prepared and they were ready to fight. But most importantly, don't miss the phrase in verse 15 that attributes this to God. It says that God had brought it to naught. God had frustrated and hindered the enemy. God showed himself to be more powerful than the enemies, more powerful than man. And hence they retreated. God had fought for his people. I don't know about you, but I can picture this joy and jubilation that must have been present. The cheers and the laughter that must have rung through Jerusalem as they witnessed the enemies retreating. But what is important to note is that Nehemiah realizes that the victory was not yet won, for the walls remained unfinished. And hence he makes sure that the people return to work. In the words of one scholar, returning to work, this was the victory. A defending against the attack was not the victory. The people of God would not be at peace and security until the war was rebuilt. You know, getting on with the work was the victory. When we are under spiritual attack, it is easy to feel that just enduring the storm is the victory. It isn't. The attack often comes to prevent your progress and work for the Lord. Victory is enduring the attack and continuing the progress and work for the Lord. And it is this that Nehemiah makes sure happens. They all go back to work, but not quite like before. They still remain prepared for battle. Nehemiah faced this great challenge of remaining prepared for warfare, but not neglecting the rebuilding. And hence he basically split the workforce into two groups. One group was responsible for rebuilding, and the other was prepared for battle. Some laid stones, the others sharpened swords and spears, but everyone had a role to play. But even those who were building were still prepared to fight. We see this in verse 17 and 18. It informs us that the workers either had a sword in their hand or by their sides. The picture is a trowel in one hand, a sword in the other. wouldn't be very easy to build walls like that, but they did. But Nehemiah didn't stop here. He also implemented a trumpet system. Now, he was concerned that the people were so spread out that if there was another attack on one side of the city, the people on the other side would have no idea. And hence, this system was implemented that when the trumpet sounded, they would know that there was an enemy approaching. Nehemiah also employed a policy that the Jews who lived outside of the city would now come and stay in the city at night time for their own 
protection. And he also increased the work hours. They now worked from dawn until the stars come out, verse 21, in order to make sure that the task would be completed as quickly as possible. And we see their dedication in verse 23. They never changed their clothes unless they needed washing. They worked and they worked and they worked. But the two most important things that Nehemiah did was that he too remained involved in the work. He was working with them side by side. He was not asking them to do anything that he himself was not willing to do. And that is a quality that all good leaders should possess. And he also kept reminding the people that God was with them. That God would fight for them. This kept the morale of the people stable. Nehemiah, this great man of God, has done a most outstanding job in leading these people to continue on in the face of opposition and to march towards completing the task that God had entrusted them with. But Satan and his wicked minions don't give up that easily and hence there is still much opposition to come which we'll turn our attention towards in our next study. But for tonight, I wish to bring out three points of application. So number one, is our view of prayer correct? In verse 9, we see that Nehemiah prayed and watched. These two things were done together. His prayers were not a substitute for action. He knew that his praying didn't mean he could sit back and do nothing. Praying didn't make him lazy. One author envisioned this scenario. It isn't hard to imagine some super spiritual among them saying, Now Nehemiah, we don't need to set a watch. We have prayed and God will protect us. Nehemiah would surely respond, Yes, God will protect us, and He will as He finds us doing our duty before Him. Set the guard. Praying and watching go together. Oh, it is imperative that we pray, but it's just as important that we watch, that we guard, that we act. Our obligation and duty is often much more than simply Praying. No, prayer is not a substitute for action. They go hand in hand. Now allow me to illustrate this principle. Now praying for the unconverted is a noble thing to do and something that we should all be in the regular habit of doing. And yet our duty does not stop there. We cannot wipe our hands and think, I have prayed, I have done my evangelism job. For we too are called to share the gospel. That is the action that should follow our praying. That is us setting up our watch. Likewise, we pray to God that our needs will be met. That is a good and right prayer. But that doesn't mean that we can be completely wasteful and blow all of our money on worthless stuff, simply thinking that God will provide putting Him to the foolish test. We need to keep a watch on the finances. It's also a good thing 
to pray and ask God to keep you safe as you travel. But then you go out and drive erratically, breaking the speed limit, failing to drive to the conditions, and failing to keep an eye on the road. There's a fair chance that prayer won't be answered. And we must understand that prayer is not a substitute for action. Prayer is not to make us lazy. And I wonder how often one of our greatest problems is not so much a lack of prayer, but rather a lack of action after prayer. Now I realise that it's God who gives the increase, it's God who provides. I definitely don't dispute that. But we are instructed both here and also by Jesus to watch and pray. And in the words of one commentator, when we see an area of our Christian life that needs particular attention, it isn't enough to pray. You you need to set a watch as well, give special attention and accountability to that area of your life until you are walking in consistent victory. Prayer is not a substitute for action, but it empowers our actions. Number two, now what would it take for you or for me to quit? In verse 11, the wicked intent of the enemy is revealed. That when they declare, we will slay them, and that will cause the work to cease. And this is really a backhanded compliment. That they had tried so hard to bring this to a halt, but they now knew the only way to get them stop serving God, to stop doing God's work, was to kill them. The question is, what would it take, or what did it take for you to stop serving God? For you to stop doing His work? And unfortunately, how often the enemy doesn't have to try very hard, for we give up very easily. As one author said about current believers, you know, the devil does not have to kill them because discouragement, compromise, money, relationships, frustration or trouble get them to stop serving God. And how true that is. Now it doesn't take much for us to stop serving Christ, to throw in the towel. And in light of all that He has done for us, that is really pretty pathetic. But the good news is, there is forgiveness to be found in Christ. And perhaps tonight you have stopped serving Christ, stopped living for Him like you once did, now then confess it, deal with it, make it right, and you will be forgiven. You don't have to fear that Christ will not take you back, for He loves you, and His grace is greater than all of our sin. Oh, beloved, just like the prodigal son who was lovingly received back by the Father, so too will we be when we return from wandering from our God. His arms are open. He will receive you back if you will come. And number three, how do I endure opposition? Spiritual opposition is part and parcel of life for the believer. We know that. Satan has an arsenal of weapons that he employs on those who belong to Christ. 
No, He can't take our salvation, but He strives to rob us of all joys and blessings that are ours in Christ. He strives to make us miserable. He strives to get you and I to doubt the love of God. He is hell-bent on getting us to give up on the Christian life. And the question is, what do we do when Satan attacks us? Well, the good news is the New Testament makes it clear that if you and I resist the devil, he will flee from us. It's possible to have victory. And something that Nehemiah reminded the people to do is very instructive in helping us also. He told the people to remember their God. Remember who He is. Remember that He is with them and that He will fight their battles. And we too need to remember this. If you remember earlier in the sermon... I quoted a verse that explained the predicament that the Apostle Paul found himself in. Allow me to quote that verse with the following verse. 2 Timothy 4.16 At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. Verse 17 Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. The Apostle, he faced opposition upon opposition. And the thing that kept him going, that helped him withstand the attacks, was the fact that his Lord, Jesus Christ, stood with him and gave him strength. And this is how we face spiritual opposition. Put on the armor of God as spelled out in Ephesians 6. And remember that you never stand alone. You don't have to do it in your own strength, for that will never be enough. Jesus is with you and He will help you. He will give you the strength, the grace and the courage from His divine resources to help us endure and overcome any opposition. And these precious resources can be ours because we are united to Christ. And hence, when the trials come, when the troubles come, when opposition is rampant, ask Jesus to help you. Ask Him to comfort, strengthen and keep you, for He is willing to aid you and He will carry you through. My friend, the answer is Jesus. Amen.